So I call up, hello, Virgin Records. I'm like, oh my God, it's this is it. And um, they're like, oh, I'm like, I'm really good and I don't give a shit. <laughs> right, I'm perfect. Auditions are Friday. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm leaving tomorrow. Can I have an audition today? They're like, no, no. <laughs> Auditions are Friday. And I'm like, I can't, I can't. I didn't. I didn't have anything. And um, I got my ride back to the north of England. And every mile further away from London, I'm like, what are you fucking? Yeah. You know, you you just. My you, life is like, going the wrong way. Literally. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we We drew the map. It's Martin, Martin Atkins. Welcome to Curious Creatures. It's lovely to see you. Thanks. It's uh, it's nice to be on this all drummer edition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've you've drummed for a few people, Martin, and uh, both Lowell and I were going. Which bands? How many bands? Yeah. If if you had to list them, where would you start? I would st- I would do this chronologically. So, uh, Pill. Yeah. The good years, I would say. Although I love Jim Walker Pill, uh, 77, 78. Yeah. But 79 to 85 Pill, uh, Killing Joke, Extremities. Um, so I was a member of both of those bands. Then I toured with Ministry yeah. on the, the Cage Tour, which is kind of, if there was 12 weeks to be involved with Ministry, I would say that that was it. It was yeah. insane. Yeah. Uh, and I say that after being in a band with John and Jazz. Right. And right. then I started, I started Pig Face, which is my band that has yeah. six or 700 people in it. I have the uh, baseball cap. <laughs> and um, uh, work with Nine Inch Nails. I'm in the Head Like a Hole video on the Grammy-winning Wish. Uh, and then I, did, uh, I started Murder, Inc. with some of Killing Joke and, um, and something called The Damage Manual with Wobble and Geordie and Chris Conley. And I'm still doing it. I'm I'm still doing Pig Face. We toured in 2019. Okay. I'm still out and about. Wow. I I mean I'm exhausted just listening to to the list. I've recently been looking at just watching you playing with John and Lou, and pleasing me the bass player's name. Um, well, uh, Joe Wobble and um, Pete Jones. Was my uh, era of, of, yeah. of pill? Yeah. yeah, John McGeoch was in with you, uh, I think, in pill. He he was after me. He came after you. Okay. Yeah, I was Keith Levine. Uh, I mean, yeah, I go I go backwards and forwards with Keith Levine, but I do love his guitar playing so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah because I saw I saw pill. Played the festival in Turku in Finland, and that's when John was with them. So that was after you, yeah. Martin. Yeah, I, I think that yeah. there's. I just saw. I saw that documentary, "The Public Image Is Rotten," and um, it was kind of. It, you know, John was involved in it, so of course it was nice towards John. But what I saw, which I didn't like, was 
the the efforts of the bands that came after 85 to rail John in and regiment everything. So uh, we used to have this fight every night with the lighting guy, like, give me a set list so I can work out the lights. Well, no, you know, sometimes religion would be nine minutes long. Sometimes it would be three minutes long. Sometimes a song called Chant, I would it would be 20 BPM faster because we were allowing for the whatever the visual stimulus was. Maybe there was riot police on stage yeah. with with German shepherds. So I just kick it up a bit, and and so there was there was this looseness to pill back then, which I think has been lost, and I understand why, but but it's different. Tell what what year was that? When did this? Because I we I'm I, lol. I'm sure you had the same thing, but we would sit there in secret before we went on to the last possible minute. You know, what are we going to start with? Where will we get to? We kind of knew what was in the middle, and the crew kind of knew. Or should I say, the lights and the sound guy. But it wasn't like they needed to know. You know, they would they were set to work with anything whatever came off the stage including mic stands you know whatever else came off when did this when was this kind of adherence to a strict set list so we can do the lighting plot do you know this is where we're at now yeah i i mean i get it so like what what we went on stage sometimes i was watching like new york or somewhere and before we start a song Everybody turns around and we're obviously like, what are we going to play? We didn't even have the first song decided when we went on stage. <laughs> and sometimes we'd play a song twice if we felt like it, you know. Um, but I think the yeah. sound guy wants to know the BPM to set the delays. The lighting guy wants to do the thing. But Keith would just say, I want every single light to be green just turn them all on and go away, you know. So it was it was very anti everything, um, anti security, anti rehearsal. We didn't rehearse before my first gig, which was Paris or Prontoms. It was just it was it was crazy, really, when you think about it. Yeah. So so in a way, it was more like uh, like an old-style jazz band. Like, you know, Miles gets on and says, we're doing this, and let's do that. And then you take a solo, and you do this. So it's more like that, really. Right. And instead of instead of a trumpet, the, the trumpet part was the audience. And so if the audience was this other element that wanted yeah. a song to go on longer to resolve some situation, right. Um, right. It, it just would. It was very fluid. We we had we had some sort of like signals to each other, you know, during the show that like okay if it's going well if things you know you're getting a nice sort of feedback from the audience we'll keep it going for a little longer you know and then we had like the little tells to you know like hey this is four bars to the end and we're gonna change you know which worked all right until I came to do like the reflection shows in 2011 and we played some songs we never actually had played live. We just, we put them on the B sides, you know, we'd made them up in the studio, put them on the B sides, never played them. So we, we kind of worked out a format for them in rehearsals. And then Robert said to me, Oh, uh, 
I said, well, how are we going to end this bit here? And he goes, well, I'll just get the bass because I'm playing the bass for this one. And I'll just <laughs> put it up a little bit like this. And you'll know that's like, you know, four bars and we're going to end. And I go, okay, that's fine. Until the day that we do the first show and the, the lighting guy has dry ice and smoke, like, you know, flooded on the stage. And I can't, halfway through the song, I can't see Robert. You know, he's just disappeared. And then suddenly when I'm thinking, oh shit, I probably should, I've just stopped in four bars. I see this bass come flying out of the, <laughs> out of the cloud of dry ice and smoke. And it's like, I didn't see Robert at all. I just saw the tip of the bass. So I knew, okay, that's it. Well, so your, your signals are a band seeking to look tight and rehearsed remotely yeah. in front of an audience. The signal I got my first time in New York at the Palladium sold out, Scorsese's there, 3,000 people. <laughs> I've, I've spent my childhood watching episodes of Taxi to see the New York City skyline on the VHS <laughs> New York, New York. Well, the signal I got six songs in was the tour manager crawling on stage by my hi-hat, and he looks up and he goes, John and Keith. I'm like, yeah, John and Keith. Shut, shut. Yeah, uh, they, they've gone back to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's the Palladium. Yeah. I mean, and I was so frightened. To, we got the New York Times the next day, and it's like a scene out of a movie. Like, what do the what do the trades say about our new play? And 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 I knew, having my northern work ethic, like we give the audience good value and blah blah blah. Wobble was the same too, and I open up the New York Times with trepidation. And, and it was absolute hogwash. The mercurial public image. It began with a beat. Yeah, okay. And, and, and magically, it stripped down music to its... It was ab I was just like, this is absolute bollocks. So there was no reason for us to even try. Martin, you you come up from... I, I, I sense it's the yeah. north of England somewhere. I used to live in Durham. In Durham. When did, you, when did you start playing? I think we have a similar kind of background in little bands. Uh, started playing when I was nine. Right. Um, first band when I was 11 backing strippers at Newcastle Labour Club at the age of 12 I was doing eight eight gigs a week at like 13 pints trying to do my homework in the dressing room pints of Federation Ale Newcastle Brown Ale yeah it's yeah. kind of similar yeah I was playing in the Labour Club's conservative clubs around Liverpool um Pints of lager, I think it was lager, if you were lucky, you know, and if somebody had, had, had a pee in a pot, you know, because there was no toilet backstage. Um, but it was all that. I just remember our singer kind of like, you know, because he was like a cross between Elvis Presley and Cliff Richard. His name was Chuck. <laughs> and Chuck, Chuck was always running at the end of the night because husbands were chasing him, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was yeah similar vibe. Yeah, we had a brick through the windshield. Yeah, because somebody was with, and I think I was like fourteen or fifteen, but we were doing cover songs. So I got to play eight shows a week. Sunday afternoons, we backed the strippers. Uh, we do originals one or two nights a week. But by the time I got down to London, seventeen or eighteen, I'd been playing yeah. an awful lot. <laughs> 
we, it was a little different. It was a little different for us because, like, uh, Robert's brother and his and his mates, they used to go to the pub Sunday lunchtime, and there'd be some old blues guys in there jamming. So they'd sneak us in the back, and then they'd say, "You want to play a song?" So we go up there, we play a couple of songs, you know, and that, and and that's really how we learned. Yeah, but. The only other the only other band in town was fronted by Neil Gaiman, the the Sandman writer, and he, he's like, I, I didn't want to carry on having a band because the cure with the competition, so I just stopped, you know, and became a very successful writer. But Martin, you went down to London, then you got on your own. Well, I did the first time. I went down to London. So this band I was in was called The Mind with a Y. Oh, yeah. That was the <laughs> that played with a Y. And uh, we had Mellotron, and it was, you know. Uh, and we were we played to 600 people in the north of England. Oh, wow. And it, and it was great, you know. Yeah. But I'm like, we're the, we're the biggest band in the north. It's like saying, I don't right. know. I don't know what it's like saying. Insert something funny. Biggest band of Crawley. And so I went down to have some auditions. My dad arranged for me to, um, with a moving company he was working with, he, he ran this textile factory. They'd take my drums down, and I went for like three days. One place, I had an audition in Acton, and the guy from the next band said he would come and pick me up with my kit. So it gets to the Wednesday. I've, I've run out of money, except I've got £2.50 for a Chinese lunch. Nice. And however much it was for Melody Maker, because uh, I, I thought it was amazing. You could get Melody Maker on a Wednesday in London. Everywhere else it was Thursday. Thursday, So I, yeah. was, like, I was like 24 hours ahead of the curve, you know. And it, but it was heady. It was like, oh, you know, and um, I saw the ad um, for, for the, the first public image gig, and it just said, drummer required for band with rather well-known singer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's John. That's John's new thing. So I call up, hello, Virgin Records. I'm like, oh, my God, it's this is it. And um, they're like, oh, I'm like, I'm really good, and I don't give a shit. <laughs> right, I'm perfect. Auditions are Friday. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm leaving tomorrow. Can I have an audition today? They're like, no, no. <laughs> Auditions are Friday. And I'm like, I, I can't. I didn't. I didn't have anything. And um, I got my ride back to the north of England, and every mile further away from London, I'm like, what are you fucking? Yeah. You know, you you just. My you, life is like, going the wrong way. Literally, yeah. So I get I get back to Durham. I called up the guys in the band. I'm like, uh, I'm I'm leaving. I'm going to move to London, which seems crazy right now. When I was 17 or 18, and and so I did, and then I kind of kept tabs on the whole pill situation, which was, you know, I think they went through seven drummers in the next eight months. Yes, they actually set Carl Burns on fire. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and you were, yeah, and yet you were not put off. <laughs> no, when you look back at this stuff, I try. You know, I've got I've got four kids of my own. I I try and think of them. You know, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, they set the drummer on fire. This is the job for me. That's the one. <laughs> I'm ready. 
<laughs> Can I do it now? <laughs> they, were, they were going through so many that by the time I would read about somebody departing in sounds or enemy, they were on the next one. Spontaneously combusting. By this time, I knew half the people at Virgin Records. Yeah. I, I knew Jeanette and Jeanette's mom. Okay. Because somebody, you know, you know, you call up people, oh, Jeanette's not here. Do you need a home number? I'm like, oh, all right. Right. And so I called. Yeah. This is uh, Je- Jeanette, Jeanette Lee. And then I'd end up talking to her mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> so uh, one day uh, I, I got a call from Keith who said, come to the townhouse. And, and that was Bad Baby, the, the last song to go on Metalbox. Wow. Martin, you, you have now, you have the, the post-punk museum, right? Yes. And all the jobs that go with it, Martin? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was telling Budgie earlier, <laughs> it's, it's, it's six jobs. It's like friends don't let friends start museums, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I, 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 people say, well, what was the plan? What was the strategy? There wasn't one. Right. I have, um, an old funeral home in Chicago and I was doing zooms out of the basement Yeah, and I do a killing joke zoom and a pill zoom and a, a music business advice zoom. And I started to pull bits of scenery out of boxes. Money is not our God. I printed that for killing joke. So I put that behind me one time and then some pig face scenery and then some other stuff. So you got all this <laughs> stuff in storage. It, it, it was at my place. Yeah. And so, so it starts to take over the basement and I just thought, I knew I had all this stuff. The sign from the dressing room door when we did American Bandstand, my Mickey Mouse watch from uh, banging the door, just crazy stuff, hand-typed itinerary from when we went to Paris in 1980, and the ticket from the Paris Metro. And, are you, you know, the, the archive, you are, you're the archivist. Yeah, I'm the... Without realizing it, even. Yeah, I'm the, the hoarder. Yeah. And the, I thought, so we cleared out the space upstairs. It's about 2,000 square feet. I said, look, it will never be easier than to just put stuff on the walls and see what there is. And um, we filled the space really quickly. I did a, a, a Nipsey Hustle type move, I think. I said, that you can be a founder. You know, what did you do this week? You did this, you did that. You could be the founder of a museum. $125, I'll send you this T-shirt. And it turned into a T-shirt, a signed letter, and a, and a pass to get in. And people started becoming founders before the place was even worthy of being a coffee shop. You know, I mean, <laughs> just like I, I almost, I called up a few people, said, well, thank you, but what the hell are you doing? It, it doesn't really <laughs> exist yet. And now there's 1,200 people have become founders. The city of Chicago has been down there a couple of times. Um, The other way you can become a founder is to send me something. Right. You know, so people would send like 15 T-shirts. I'm like, well, you only need, just send me one or (laughs) two. You know, some people became founders and then sent me some shirts and then found another box of and then sent me that. <laughs> so, and um, it was actually Charles Levi, the bass player from Thrill Cult Cult, 
when he collapsed and went into hospital uh, over a year ago. Yeah. And his, some of his family came up from Georgia. He's, he's okay now. He's uh, okay-ish now. Good to hear he's doing better. Yeah. So two of his children weren't allowed into the hospital room, which I think was kind of a good thing, really. And, and on a whim, I said, well, everybody should come to the museum. You know, even though it kind of wasn't then. Right. And during that day when his family came in and we got chocolate milk and Coca-Cola and we have our own brand of whiskey and some other stuff, we went downstairs and printed a T-shirt, a Charles Levi T-shirt and and gave his kids a photograph. I saw that this had nothing to do with the stuff that was on the walls. There There was this vibe and a responsibility and this other thing going on, which kind of spurred me to keep it going. Yeah. And, and it's become, you know, um, it has these moments where we're, we're very quiet. It's got some raucous stuff as well going on. But there are moments when, when it's just a place to sit and think and respect and remember and, and all of that stuff. So, that sounds great. Is it part of you, the way you get an idea and you go, why not? Is it, is it the reason you got yourself to London when you were saying you were on the train back home and you thought, hey, I'm, I'm going the wrong way? Do you find, a, is, is it something that's accompanied you through, uh, through your life? Uh, not consciously. Not, not <laughs> consciously. I mean, yeah. a, a large part of my life was obscured by speed and alcohol. You know, right. so we right. were just in it, heads down and in it. Yeah. Now, this is the um, hand screened, signed and numbered, rubber stamped flexi disc, and a scratch and sniff banana postcard. So it's like, it's like none of this is necessary, but it's essential. <laughs> I'm way more comfortable. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. Do we need the scratch and sniff banana postcard? And one part of my brain's like, of course we don't. And the other half is like, absolutely, let's get going. <laughs> I made the mistake. I, I've done some scratch and sniff stuff. I did a scratch and sniff blueberry white vinyl seven inch. And uh, then in the height of the pandemic, I did a, um, uh, a Zoom conference with my students. Uh, Lol, you were part of it. Yes. The I remember MMX. That. Yeah. And there was a scratch and sniff component. Where, you know, so Wendy Day, who got Eminem, his deal, you, you scratch number three, and it was the smell of money. Mm. <laughs> this was perfect. I made the mistake of asking Michael Alago <laughs> what smell he wanted for his panel. Yeah. And, and he said, well, <laughs> sweaty boys in a mosh pit. Easy to reproduce. And, and I'm like, what? Well, so then... Uh, I end up, I'm on the phone with the fragrance company because mm. <laughs> I couldn't just say, here's, here are 10 fragrances. Which one do you want? Right. Banana, strawberry, the ocean, whatever. Yeah. I had to ask him. And so they're like, well, I don't know that we have that exactly. We'll send you a, a, a sniffing palette. <laughs> and then it was like onions. It was like, no, this is not it. And I, he actually got upset with me. He got quite a bit upset. 
In the end, I chose burning rubber smell. Oh, interesting. Because there's a, he signed Metallica when he was 23, and they have a song called Fuel or something. There's a race car burning rubber at the beginning. Yeah. I thought, good save, Martin. He was, he was like, no, yeah. it's not the smell yeah. of sweaty boys. Yeah. But you know, this important, like, you know, that you're doing this, Martin, because no other bugger's going to do it. Nobody else is going to put it out there. And without that, it, it's, it goes from people's memories and it goes into the back thing and nobody nobody goes, well, why was it important? Well, they'll know why it's important if they come to the museum, right? They'll know why it's important. Mm -hmm. so. By default, I've got a, a, a stuff that follows me around. I've got a little place in France that's like a storage. I've got the Cure's old drummer, lol, you know, Boris. Oh, yeah. Boris, Boris yeah. moved into yeah. a place in, in like three villages away from where I used to live. And and so I borrowed his barn to store all my stuff. When I moved out of the big house that I used to share with the singer in said band, yeah. Madame. Yeah. And um, but I, I I find myself with like you know, boxes of singles and like sorry Susie Severin, um, you know I I didn't nick them. They just ended up in this barn. You know somebody's got to look after this stuff. The old posters from the Rainbow. You know I wasn't even there, but I've got a poster. What do we do? Open a museum? You know, one of the good things about Facebook is all of these, when an anniversary gets announced, of the anniversary of this gig or this album, and then people will jump on like, oh, I was 16 and I saw that show, or we slept on the train station, woke up covered in snow, or this story or that story. And I, I, I love this whole aspect of reminiscing about this stuff and connecting with people just briefly you know i somebody posted a shot from a birmingham show and my dad's in the picture <laughs> like, <laughs> wow because my dad is in the back of this picture you know that's what it's about it's yeah. about memories for people you know and how you get into what yeah. you're doing and the music and that that's i think that's very true you know it's like all those memories unfortunately i don't have any diaries or anything because i back in the day i was like i'm an extensionist i'm not i don't care if i live or die i'm not going to have you know i'm not going to write about anything except the present moment which was pretty stupid really you know but that's what happened for me well, i i think that i was just this huge fan you know of 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 pill killing joke of all all of these bands you yeah. know and so i just i kept everything yeah. I guess I think my dad said to me at one point, "You're going to have two years at this game." Yeah. <laughs> so and then you 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 left technical college, so you're going to end up down the pit, you know. And I, <laughs> I think it just kind of PTSD'd me into like grabbing, you know. At least I'll have my backstage pass from the Paris show and my paper yeah. cut from the Peel sessions. You know, you become the the repository of these stories. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm doing some, um, I'm doing six or seven speaking things in right. the UK. And, um, and it's like 1979 to 1991, pill, kill and joke, little bit of ministry, a little bit of the 90s. And then I put two sides to every story. And I thought, oh, that's, that's smart. People will get that. Yes, yes. But then I just thought, well, it's, I don't care about John's side of the story. <laughs> It's it's uh, and it and then it it sets it up like it's some he said he said 
bullshit. And it's just yeah. stories that have got nothing to do with any of that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do you get stuck with the concept that sounds brilliant? And then you go, oh, these words really go great together. Let's just go for it. And then you have to back it up with reality afterwards. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. Two sides of every story. <laughs> and it's the presentation should be, John said this in this interview. And then he yes. also said it in his book. Yeah. However, Let's look at the <laughs> like my 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 speaking things. I would aspire to be ten percent of a Stuart Lee comedic uh, uh, presentation, not not some kind of let's set the record straight. Yes, you know. Yeah. Oh my lord! I think yeah. you hit on upon a good point because I'm just I'm just finishing my second book now, and there's a bit of that in it as well. Brilliant, you know. There's a bit in like, you may have heard this went down this way, but here's the truth. And here's my version of the same incident. And you have to have, it's like, it's not about, you know, keeping score or anything stupid. It's about, hey, this is how I perceived it. This is how it went down for me. You know, there wasn't just one person in that whole event, you know? Yeah, yeah. And some of it's easy. You know, part of it, You've got a bunch of journalists parroting what they've been told for the last 30 years. You know, somebody yes. said to me, so when you and Keith did the drums on Under the House, I'm like, yeah. what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I, Keith has said on a few occasions, I was like, his arms would snap if he was doing it under yeah. that. The? It's just ridiculous on the face yeah. of it. You know? Yeah, and when you use that drum machine on, no, it wasn't yeah. the fucking drum machine. It was me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that happens. But but I, I don't have diaries, but I've got these things. So I, I will tell a story about jazz came to the Kill and Joke rehearsal space with these new lyrics for a song that became Age of Greed. And... I don't know if you've seen the Killing Joke uh, uh, fans. You know, they're a little bit crusty. Not everybody's mm. doing well, you know. People are hitchhiking yeah. to gigs and stuff. And so I asked Jazz to write out these lyrics, and me and Jordy are looking at these lyrics. The lyrics were about the fact that first-class travel isn't good value. <laughs> No. And I'm like, Jazz, who are we? What's the target demographic for these lyrics, mate? Because I don't, I don't know anybody at a Killing Joke show who's traveling first class upstairs on a bus. Yeah. But you, you, yeah. you, know, you think, well, maybe that's just a story. But then I found the lyric sheet and I can see my hand and Geordie's hand <laughs> scribbling to try and dial it back. Um, yeah. To have more solidarity with the proletariat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like. But you've been around many variations of bands that have this kind of crazed following as well. I mean, so I, I'm interested just to, you You say it was a haze of amphetamines and booze, and, and I recognize that. I mean, when you're in it, you don't have time to think how is it now is it like that are you it's not reminiscing maybe but recollection what what what, what how is it clear uh the the lots of bits of it are yes like crystal absolutely crystal clear mm. it's a blessing really to sit and look back at this stuff firstly just to think about telling stories but then to i wonder about myself 
So you go from being in a band with Johnny Rotman. Who's next then? Oh, Jazz Coleman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. All right then. Who, who's next? Al Jorgensen from Ministry. Okay. Like, yeah. You know, and, and so we, we're on the road with Ministry and it's like, how can I phrase this? Be careful of a, of a heroin addict that also is a cleanliness freak. <laughs> wow. So we, we suddenly in the bus. Yeah. There's, the, the bus is full of chlorine gas because <laughs> a couple of the couple of the junkies are carefully cleaning out all of their works with bleach and flushing it down the chemical toilet in the bus, which combines. To oh be, my! Oh my God! It's yes. like, you know, I mean, give me give me a give me a filthy junkie any day, really. So, but but so I was in Killing Joke. I got time off. They weren't very busy to do the ministry tour. And then I started Pigface. Yeah. So I, I guess I have some kind of bizarre tolerance, uh, and uh, which has turned into respect is not the right word, but maybe it is. Yeah. I'm less worried about the craziness uh, of a charismatic person. Right. Uh, I, I'm more worried about the charisma and happy to deal with anything that, that comes along with that, mm. kind of to a degree, because. Once you've sat behind John, you realize what how rare charisma is. A lot, lots of managers will say, "You wait till you get a load of our charismatic lead singer." And what they mean is they've got some interesting arm motions. No. That's not charisma, <laughs> you know. No, it's no. sounds sounds a little undefinable. Yes, I, I, I you know, I, I, I think back to my singers i call them my singers you know but, but <laughs> when they were performing they, they changed and uh you know jane casey with big in japan she was like just part of the same show on and off but Ari up was just yeah nothing 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 restricted her yeah. uh, whatever was passing through her mind at that moment was what came out I imagine yeah. it's a it's a similar thing with the people you worked with. Um, were you drawn to this somehow without realizing it? I, I don't know if it's drawn to it or not frightened of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I moved to Chicago because I saw we were in New York and then Los Angeles, but I saw what was going on with industrial music and wax tracks. I'm like, oh, I'm jumping right into the middle of that because I, I'd seen it in London. And I wanted to be in it again, and industrial music was just going crazy. Were you with um, Were you with Thrill Kill with Frankie and Charles? No, th but they were in Chicago. They were part of Wax Tracks. Yeah, uh, Big Black, uh, Steve Arbini, Big Black. Yeah, um, Butthole Surfers were on Touch and Go. It wasn't just industrial, but it was like punk gone mad with electronics. Yeah, right, you know. And uh, speaking, so you uh, you mentioned Thrill Kill. I I texted with Charles earlier. Uh, Charles <laughs> Levites. He said, yes. he says, Martin, you are the monarch of drummers. <laughs> Budgie is the duke. Oh, oh, I don't know. I get, I don't, what, what does that make law? The, the joker. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that, there could have been that in there. Well, I'm your prince, law. You're my king. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there we prince go. and the king. Yeah. yeah. And he, he said, uh, Budgie and Susie and I celebrated my birthday together with Scorsese. Really? He says, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. <laughs> Maybe, was it a brand of drink? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Scorsese. 
please, uh, when you next uh, are in touch with Charles, uh, give him my best. Um, very fond memories, even though I can't remember Scorsese. <laughs> Who can? I will do. I will do. Martin, you've written, you've written um, a, a, a memoir. A memoir, have you written? I'm, I, I'm working on that. I, I, I've written three books on the music business. Uh, Tour Smart, which became the Bible of touring, right? Uh, which was really nice. I need to go back because it does mention MySpace twice. But there's, there's some really good stuff in there. Then uh, my second book was Welcome to the Music Business. You're fucked. Which was, <laughs> it's the 10th anniversary of that right now. And then I did Band Smart, which is everything. Uh, it's like a these are like phone books. Right. Uh, everything to do with being in a band before touring. But the next up... Um, will be Pill and then Killing Joke and then Ministry and Pig Face probably. It might all be one thing. Yeah. It might be a coffee table book. Yeah. It might be a series of catalogs, little magazines through the museum. I don't really know. Mm. It could be a combination of all those things. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you got, have, is the museum officially open now? Well, it was going to be. It, it, let me say it like this. It's founders only by appointment. Right. But... Anybody who emails me, like, we're in Chicago next week, I'll open it up. It's it's almost like a nightclub velvet rope. You can't come in here. No, no, no. Okay, then. It's a cool vibe, for sure. We're, we are blessed to uh, to be here, be, being able to talk. Um, yeah, actually being, actually, being able to talk is a blessing, really. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I could list, and, and, and I, with Nine Inch Nails, I remember uh, Jeff, Jeff Ward. I was at his funeral. Jarring. Was open casket. And there he is with the drumsticks. But, you know, and as a drummer, you know, it's like, okay, man, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, met, I, I met him on the first Lollapalooza tour. And I remember giving him, like, I thought, I've got to get this guy interested, you know, like, keep his attention and i remember giving him cds of the kodo drummers from japan wow and we and we used to play them you know and and of course she played with bill uh dear, dear departed yeah bill so we, we started pig face together um there is one thing more annoying than a drummer warming up with a practice pad which is two drummers <laughs> two drummers warming up two, so we will be banished because I guess the sound of our practice pads would disturb the heroin users. <laughs> We'd have these conversations and we just decided to start Pigface. And, um, and then uh, Biff, who was Robert Fripp's tech, uh, a friend of mine, he, he brought me a whole folder of stuff. And it's some fun stuff. King Crimson catering this way, dressing rooms that. Look, oh, this is hilarious. And then it gets into Bill's onstage notes from King Crimson. And I just I just had to close the, the folder yeah. and, and put it away for a bit. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It makes me feel grateful to be here. Yeah. One of my friends, uh, uh, Droston Madden, he produced Wolfgang Press <clears throat> and, and a, a bunch of different things. He, he, I don't think he really knows where he is anymore, mm. you know. Uh, so I'm hoping to see him when I'm over in the UK. When are you thinking of getting over? 
Um, I'm leaving on the 10th. Oh, soon. My shows start on the 13th in, in Manchester and then going down to the Dublin Castle. I think I'm speaking at Abbey Road, Ooh, which nice. is like, that's cool as hell Yay. for me. Yeah. And then doing Birmingham, Brighton, uh, something else in London. I get to speak in Hull and, and Margate. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you've arrived. But, but of course, every Facebook <laughs> post is, why not Wales? Why not Middlesbrough? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I'll, you know. Yes. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you, Martin. Uh, it's been, been great. It's been, been too long. Yeah, it has, it has been a while. And it's really nice to talk to you guys, too. Really, it's lovely to uh, share some time with you after all this time. I'm a big fan of, of both of you, and it's great to sit and chat. Thank you. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.